sabbatical. And, mate, I just, uh, I just want to say, before I pray for you, I just want to say, hey, I know how much you're looking forward to this. Appreciate the way in which you lead us. We, we really do love the way that you and Julie just have always poured your heart into this place. But, mate, it's time for rest. It's time to enjoy, to kick up, have a couple of months off. And uh, so before you bring the word, and, Lord, uh, the, and we just want to anoint you to the Lord with that and also just to anoint you with your with your time away. And Lord, just pray to the Lord, it'll be a special time. It'll be a refreshing time. And we know that um, you won't forget us, but we want you to switch off. We want you to be able to just, hey, things are in good hands. We've got some good folk back here looking after things. You know you don't need to worry about that. So, hey, mate, let me pray for you as you bring the word and also just as you're about to head off. So is there anything you want to say? Um, uh, no, well, I'm not sure what to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, goodbye. Hey, look, uh, thank you, Dave. I may appreciate that. Uh, look, I am really looking forward to being away. We're going to, Julie and I are going to be gone for the months of September, October and November. It does seem like a long time. Uh, we're going to be out of the country for a couple of months. Uh, one of the things that uh, I've been wanting to do for many years is to actually walk in the footsteps of Jesus. And so we're going to spend uh, a little over a month uh, in uh, places like uh, Israel, Greece, Rome and Turkey, uh, and uh, I feel very humbled and privileged that I get to be able to do that. Uh, so would you pray, would you be praying for us that in that time, while well, the time we're away, that we can be a blessing in the lives of other people as well too. Uh, looking forward to uh, just switching off. I won't forget Bendigo Baptist Church, but I won't be worried about Bendigo Baptist Church. Look, look I honestly feel like um, uh, if there was a time for me to go away, it couldn't be a better time. Uh, coming off the back of our 170, what a great celebration. Uh, I just, God's doing some really good things in this place. You know, we're about to launch a city campus. Uh, staff are in a good space. It's just, people are leading well all over Benigo Baptist Church. So, mate, so I just feel really good about all that. That's great. Uh, we're just going to pray, but before we pray, uh, the youth church and the little tackers can go out. So we'll dismiss you now and then we'll pray uh, for the word and for Dave. So let's pray. Lord, I just thank you so much for this man. I thank you for this mate. I thank you for this brother. Uh, we just appreciate the, the tireless effort that Dave continues, Angelie, continues to pour into the life of this church and has done over many, many years. Father, we just pray that this time will be a time of refreshing, a time of renewal, just that they'll hear from you and that they'll just have some downtime, that they'll just be able to get away and just enjoy being in a different setting. And Lord, just uh, we pray your hand upon them. Lord, we also ask that you would just be with Dave now as he brings the word. Lord, we just pray that as he looks at what it means to be an unstoppable church, Lord, we'll be encouraged and that we'll be able to just be re-energized about our faith, our walk, our desire to be the local church, to do that well. Father, we just pray. We thank you so much for Dave and Julie. We just pray that you'd just be with them and bless them, and we just want to just send them off with our love. Uh, and Lord, we just thank you so much. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dave. Well, I must say, uh, I'm looking forward to being away, but I'm already looking forward to coming home. Uh, and that probably just uh, is indicative of the fact that I'm in a good space uh, and uh, just grateful. I feel very humbled and privileged to be a part of such a great church filled with great people uh, and to be serving in this context as well too. So uh, you will be in our thoughts and prayers uh, while we're gone. You know, one of the things that I am also 
quite excited about. As I watch people, as I watch God grow people, uh, as people step up into ministry, taking on responsibilities, Dave's going to lead here at our uh, Juniton campus, AJ obviously over at our Eagle Hawk campus, and together, both of them are going to lead the church with church council on a, a really gifted staff team. So uh, uh, I, I'm grateful for that because this ministry is not just built upon a personality or upon a person. It's built upon the body of Christ and what God's doing in this space as well, too. You know, with that in mind, um, uh, Mike uh, Tangitana uh, started uh, this past week uh, leading uh, or stepping into his role as the uh, church planter in the heart of the city. Uh, and over the next few months, uh, Mike's just going to be working just behind the scenes. You won't necessarily see a, a whole bunch. We're not throwing open the doors this weekend to the city church plant. But what Mike is doing is he's building a team. Uh, and uh, they are waiting on God. They're working through uh, things together as a team, uh, equipping that, nurturing that team uh, to, uh, to lead in that space as well too. And uh, things are obviously going to change right there in the heart of the city with uh, our uh, community care hub being shut down to be refurbished for a few months as well. So uh, it's going to look a little bit different in, over the next uh, several months together. But can I encourage you to be praying for Mike? Ask him about, you know, what's going on, Mike? How can we pray for you? He, he'll get up uh, a number of times to uh, bring some updates as well too. But just excited to think through that you know, God's doing something in the heart of our city and we're a part of all of that. Our story of 170 years continues to march on, doesn't it? Uh, because of God's goodness and faithfulness uh, right here in Bendigo. So uh, some good times ahead there. I'm wondering this morning if you can, maybe a bit of a show of hands, a bit hard online, but you can acknowledge online to those that are there with you. Uh, if you've ever encountered a moment in your life where you have felt suddenly felt fear. All right, keep your hands up. Want to see them up? Yeah, all right. All right, quite a You know bit of a normal human response, isn't it, to, to, to encounter or to feel some form of anxiety or fear in your life. You know, uh, I was reflecting on that this week, and there's been a number of things that have triggered such scenarios in my life or, or feelings of anxiety or, or feeling afraid in that moment. Um, you know, for me, you're going to laugh at this, but one thing that sparks fear is snakes. Uh, I cannot stand snakes. Now, uh, for someone who's grown up on a farming environment and who's used to uh, all kinds of wildlife, uh, a number of close encounters with uh, our good friends, uh, uh, reptiles, those things that slide along in their bellies, uh, makes me anxious every time I'm just around a snake. You know, uh, I can be with friends who have pet snakes. Now, I don't understand why you would even have a snake as a pet. Let's just be honest about that, okay? But, you know, they're enjoying this snake, and I'm thinking, you know, just keep that thing far away from me or it'll be a dead snake. You know, that's kind of how I'm feeling in that moment. You know, if we're all honest, you know, we'll, we'll all have different things that we could think about that maybe at some point have, has terribly frightened us and experience, or, or it's things that trigger anxiety and fear in our lives. Uh, there are some scientific names for different fears that we come across. We often call them phobias, don't we? And let me just share a couple of them with you. Some of them will be obvious, but claustrophobia. It's, uh, it's a common fear of being in enclosed places. Uh, acrophobia. It's the fear of high places. Some people just can't do high places. Uh, agoraphobia. It's the fear of open places. Uh, arachnophobia. Now, some of you, yeah, there we go. You're thinking of it, it's spiders. You think of snakes? I'm okay with snakes, but spiders, no. 
Uh, anthropophobia, it's the fear of people. Or, I don't know whether you got this one, but metaphobia, it's the fear of money. Anybody got any fear of spending money or the fear of money? Or, or hang on, you should get this one, telephonophobia. It's the telephone. Now, I know plenty of people that seem to have a phone glued to their ears, so they obviously don't have that fear. Uh, then there's hypergeophobia. It's the fear of responsibility. Now, I know a few blokes, no one here in this room, that I think have got the fear of responsibility, uh, and it gets manifested in different ways. Or there's phob- uh, phobophobia. It's the fear of fear. And uh, if you're here this morning, you don't have this fear. It's ecclesiophobia. It's the fear of the church. You know, fear is a common, common human emotion. You know, something that we all encounter at different seasons and stages in our lives. You know, uh, uh, what's interesting about fear is that we are not the first people to ever find ourselves in a situation that maybe we've some fear in our lives, some anxiety going on, uh, because there was a group of people living in Jerusalem that were riding the highs and the lows of the early church. Uh, you know, there was a movement that Jesus sparked that had created some enormous highs. In this series we've been in called Whatever It Takes. You know, we see in Acts chapter 1 and 2, some amazing things were going on in that space as, as the word of God was being preached and literally thousands of people were coming to faith in Jesus. Now, if you don't like crowds of people, that might spark some fear. But, you know, it was a pretty exciting time. But there was also uh, some other elements and there were some very low moments, if you follow the story too, where... Uh, uh, some level of anxiety was beginning to just kind of bubble up from the ground. Some of the apostles were arrested and they were dragged in front of the religious leaders. But what did that do to the church? As they were released, they gathered together and they began to pray and God just uh, turned up in a profound way amongst the church and it just kept growing. It was an unstoppable church. You know, uh, part of the challenge of that period is that whilst the church was growing, also was the waves of persecution. And we come to this story in Acts chapter 6 and 7 and 8. It's kind of spread across three chapters. And we're going to look at that today as we wrap up this series. But it's a, it's a situation uh, that centered around a man called Stephen that would have, you would have thought would have sparked a great deal of anxiety, fear or terror in the heart of this man. But his response was incredibly different. And so if you've got a Bible, Acts chapter 6, we're going to start there today and kind of work our way through that. But as we read this, I want you to be thinking about, well, what can I learn from this for maybe a situation that I might encounter at some point where I'm faced with some opposition towards the things of Jesus? Now, who was Stephen? If you were here last week, you know, we're introduced to Stephen. He is one of the seven that's selected to kind of take care of some of the practical needs in the early church. You remember the, 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 the Greek-speaking Jews were complaining that their widows were missing out in the distribution of food. And so the apostles think, you know what, let's find some men who are full of wisdom and the Spirit of God, and let's entrust them with the responsibility of of taking care of some of the practical needs so that we can attend to some other matters around the preaching of God's Word and to prayer. Well, one of the names that's kind of stood out there is a person called Stephen. Now, Stephen kind of, we, we get just this little account of him. He's kind of on the, he's kind of on the scene for a bit, and then he is gone, and we'll kind of see that in this story. But as Acts chapter 6 continues on in verse 8, we are told, Luke tells us that Stephen, we get a description of him. 
Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. Now, what does it mean to be full of God's grace and power? Well, in essence, it just simply means to be full of or under the control of God. In other words, what's going on here is that God had given to Stephen this amazing ability to perform astounding signs and wonders. He was under the control and the influence of the Spirit of God. You know, up until this point in time, it was only the, the apostles, the, the, this group of 11, that had been able to perform such miraculous signs and wonders. But suddenly now, uh, God gives this ability to a man called Stephen. Stephen, who had just been waiting on some tables, who had been caring for the practical needs of some, some new believers right there in the church. And suddenly, uh, God begins to move through Stephen in a very profound way. Well, Stephen's ministry must have been... Uh, Quite, inc- uh, quite influential because there were some members, we are told as the story goes on, there were some members of the synagogue who took exception to some of the things that either he was doing or saying and a debate or an argument uh, uh, rose up. And verses 10 onwards, this is what it says. It says that none of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen saying, We heard him blaspheme Moses and even God's. Well, this roused the people, the elders and the teachers of the religious law. So they arrested Stephen and they brought him before the high council. The lying witnesses then said these words, This man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs that Moses has handed down to us. Now, how did Stephen respond in this moment? How do you respond to these moments or this group of people who are trying to discredit him and his ministry and the work of God? Well, verse 15 says that he was obviously unfaced because his face in that moment, like Moses at Mount Sinai, became as bright as an angel's. Now, what's that mean? Well, I think it's trying to describe the fact that he exhibited a perfect peace despite this grand inquisition. He's unfaced. Not even, he's unflappable. Why is this? I think his face just reflected this perfect peace and confidence of one that knows and trusts in his God. Well, then the high priest that was there in this moment, who was most likely Caiaphas, the same high priest that presided over the inquisition, the, the judgment of Jesus just a few months prior to that, Uh, he said these words. He said, he looked at uh, Stephen, he said, are these accusations true? Is what's being said of you, is this actually true? Yep, I want to know. In this moment, Stephen's been accused of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God and against the temple and the law. And additionally, this group of accusers had also tried to discredit him by saying that uh, uh, he had... uh, he had said that the words that Jesus would destroy both the temple and the customs delivered by Moses. Well, his response in this moment is truly quite, uh, uh, it's quite inspirational. And what's he do? Over the next 50 verses, he gives this panorama of, old, uh, of Christian history. He gives a panorama of the Old Testament history. Uh, and it's what you could call as the longest recorded defense of the Christian faith that you see anywhere in the New Testament scriptures. 
But I also think it's fair to say that Stephen wasn't interested in giving a defense to himself. What he wanted to do in this moment was to proclaim the truth about Jesus in a way in which this group of people would clearly understand. And so he presents an overview to them. They would have understood that. As he began to talk, it would have been very clear to them. And he begins to give them this overview. Now, we don't have time this morning to unpack these 50 verses. So let me just give you a brief summary as we work our way through this. See, Stephen begins with this beautiful remark where he says, brothers and fathers. Uh, He's connecting himself to this group of people, uh, to the Israelites and to their history together. And as he does that, he acknowledges their connection to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, and all the other patriarchs. And then begins to progress through some, some various uh, historical events that they would have known, that they would have celebrated, that, that would have been clear to them, including Joseph's story, uh, Moses' upbringing and calling, the, the exodus of the nation of Israel out of Egypt, the construction of the temple, uh, that, that portable tabernacle, and then the, the, the temple right there in Jerusalem. And as he's doing that, he's underscoring the the pattern of Israel's rejection of God's chosen leaders and their frequent disobedience. And and then he kind of pushes it a bit even more. He begins to critique their tendency to put too much emphasis on the physical temple, uh, trying to help them to understand that God's presence just can't be uh, located in, in in one space. And then he wraps it all up towards the end of these 50 verses by illustrating how the prophets were often rejected by uh, and persecuted by the Israelites, by their own people. And then he accuses them of continuing this same pattern of behavior. You know, we've got a bit of a saying that says, uh, you don't want to poke the bear. You know, uh, You know know those people in your life or those situations where you know if you make that particular comment, it's going to poke the bear and you're going to get a particular response? It's what kids like to do to their siblings, isn't it? (laughs) They poke the bear. They know what what button to push to get a reaction and and they poke the bear. You know, in this situation, Stephen, uh, he's kind of walked right down through history in the space of probably only... 10 or 15 minutes in this dialogue. And suddenly he just kind of brings it all home. You know, you've got those moments when you, you, uh, you've got an opportunity to say something really significant and you know it's going to hit the mark and you think, okay, will I do it? There's a price to pay for all of this. This must have been a moment right here for Stephen. He's given them this uh, review of their history and then suddenly... He pushes it all home, and in verses 51 through 53, he says these words. He says, you stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? And that's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. Poke the bear. (laughs) That's a poke the bear comments. And what was the response? You know, uh, Luke tells us in this this story, in the book of Acts, he says that they were outraged. 
They were so angry. I mean, the, the Spirit of God is trying to get their attention, but instead of listening to the Holy Spirit, they're just incensed. They're filled with rage and anger. And, and we are told that they put their hands over their ears and they start shouting. You know that response that sometimes you might get from your spouse or from your kids who put their fingers in the ear and go, la, 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 can't hear you. I mean, think about that response, but not in a funny way. Put it on steroids. They are so, so angry at Stephen. He's called them out. It's a similar response that Jesus got, wasn't it? And what happens? You get this mob of men who really were held up as the dignified leaders of Israel responding in a rather indignified way and they rush at him and they drag him out of the city and they begin to stone him. Can't even imagine what that would be like. I was thinking about that this week as I was just allowing the passage to, to impact me a little bit. And I thought, you know what? In just a few weeks' time, I'm going to be in that city. Seems a bit surreal, doesn't it? What's Stephen's response in all of that? Well, in verses 59, it says he cried out. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirits. And then he says the words, Lord don't charge them with this sin. That's a prayer that he prays. And I thought, you know what? If he had never prayed that prayer, would the situation have been any different? Because on that day, the accusers, the people who were throwing stones, laid their feet or they laid their cloaks at the feet of a man called Saul. God was true to his prayer. God was true to this prayer um, he didn't hold the sins of those that were against him in that particular moment. And we're told that uh, as Stephen's life ended, he died. It ended in the way that he seemed to have been lived. With this complete trust in God, believing that Jesus would take care of him. No matter the cost. And then the next few verses of Acts chapter 8 just kind of give us a snapshot of what happens. It's like things have been a little bit rocky in Jerusalem, but all of a sudden, uh, wave after wave of persecution just took off. Acts 8.1 says, A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. You know, if the story had finished there, or if you've never read any further than that, there's every reason why today you would think, well, that's a tragic waste of a life. Wow. A young man who had, who had uh, risen to the heights of being used by God, and his ministry was being incredibly uh, powerful, and his life ended just like that. But as has always been the case, you know, the blood of the martyrs has been the seed of the church. Because in Luke Acts 8, verse 4, it says, Luke says, But the believers who were scattered that day preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. So, in one sense, you could say that the death of Stephen became a pivotal life, a pivotal point in the life of the church, because the kingdom of God advances, in one sense, quite exponentially, but it advances not through the gifts of extraordinary individuals but in and through the lives of ordinary people 
who are willing to do whatever it takes to keep sharing the good news of Jesus. The very thing that these religious leaders hoped would shut this movement down had a way of just causing it to just to push in all kinds of directions. You now, history tells us that when the space of a couple of hundred years, what had started right here in Jerusalem had spread so far, it was so pervasive that somewhere in the vicinity of 60 to 65% of the Roman Empire had now come to faith in Jesus. That is profound. Was the life of Stephen wasted? Well, it was cut short. But I don't think we can say that it was wasted at all. His faithful witness made a profound difference. So what do we take from this? You know, as we wrap up this series called Whatever It Takes, and and I hope it's been inspiring, encouraging, and challenging in your life, but as we kind of bookend it today, as we think about this story, in fact, as we think about the courage of Stephen, you know, what is it that we can take away from the, the, the courage and the boldness of Stephen for maybe those moments in our own lives where we come up against some overt uh, uh, hostility or opposition to our Christian faith? You see, I actually think he gives us a great example. An example of, of what's required. Now, in our culture today, we're becoming increasingly secularized. There's no doubt about all of that. Uh, and, you know, in our workplaces, a bit different to the workplace that I'm in, but I experience or I step into uh, my world as a chaplain at the South Bendigo Football Club. I have a sense of what that world looks like out there and in different conversations that float around. You see... This moment may not be where our moment is, but at some point it might increasingly become like that. But, but what's that look like on a day-to-day basis? What's that look like for us as followers of Jesus who are endeavoring to, uh, to, to live out our lives faithfully? What's that look like? What, what can we learn from the example of Stephen? I want to land us with two things today if you're taking notes uh, just as we wrap up the series. And the first one is this. See, as I think about this story, I think it urges us to follow the example of Stephen. And to stay faithful to the end, using every opportunity, both good and bad, to bear witness to Christ. You know, it can be a real temptation at times to think when times are tough to think, well, where is Jesus in all of that? But God's word tells us that in all things, God is at work for good. Now, the word of God doesn't tell us that all things are good, but we are told that in all things, God is at work together for good. So what does it look like for us to, to stay faithful to the end? You know, for those that are maybe just teenagers here in this room or young adults, and you think, well, well, that seems like a long time, Dave, to be faithful to the end. And, you know, for some of us, like myself, and getting a little older, you know what? That end's starting to become a little bit more obvious to me as well, too. But what's that look like for us to remain as faithful witnesses to the end in, in whatever context God has put us? Because as we go out of this room, what happens? We are scattered, aren't we? We, 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 we? we move back out. What's that look like? Well, maybe uh, to help us with that, a, a, a good way to put it is to say, well, what does a faithful witness not look like? Because I, I know, and we probably can all sense or we have ideas, that uh, there are plenty of good examples out there of individuals whose behavior is so obnoxious that it borders on bizarre that it is not helpful to the advancement of the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not saying that God's sovereignty, that God doesn't work in and through all those things. He does. God can work in some of those those examples. But 
suppose what I'm trying to say here is that we need to resist any temptation that borders on kind of obnoxious proselytizing. Just where people are rude. They say some of the dumbest things. And you know what? I've probably been in that situation before myself. So I'm kind of pointing the mirror back at me right now as well too. But you know those people who over-spiritualize everything? That are just kind of weird? That, you know, they can't hold a normal conversation in their cultural environment because it just people can't relate to them at all. Or to those individuals who kind of, you know, think, well, you know what, uh, we've got to tell people about Jesus. So they kind of ask questions that just are offensive. They'll say things like, you know what, hey, if you were to be driving home from work today and you were to have an accident, where do you think you'd end up? Would it be heaven or hell? And people just kind of look at people and think, Really? That's where we're going with this conversation. You know, whilst we know that that's a fair, you know, there's a dynamic that's going on in all of that, that, you know, there's a reality to that. You know, how do we be faithful to Christ? Well, I think the example of Stephen's quite profound. Just a couple of things in all of this. You know, first and foremost, you know, people who are faithful witnesses to Christ are, 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 are always praying and being open to the promptings of the Spirit in their lives. They're not forcing themselves into situations, but they're just seeking God. They're saying, God, you know, wherever I'm moving today or what I'm about, uh, look, I, I am open to engaging conversations with people who you are, your spirit is already at work in in their lives and you are nudging them. God, would you make me aware of those situations? You see, that's com- a completely different response than someone who says, you know what, every person I'm going to meet, I'm going to just kind of keep barreling them into them about Jesus. You know, they're sensitive to the nudging of the Spirit and where that conversation should go. The second thing is, you know what, people who are being a faithful witness, they're not looking to hide their lights. Uh, you know, when, when times get tough, they're still looking for opportunities to, to, to give a, a fair defense or a fair explanation of, of the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. And so they're not hiding what they've got. They're not ashamed of what they've got. Uh, they are looking for ways to talk about Jesus. You see, the reality is that we shouldn't be surprised when opposition comes our way as well. And Jesus often talked about this with his disciples. Um, there's a man by the name of Nicodemus that came to him at one point in John chapter 3. And into this conversation... Jesus laid out a vision of a world that is at odds with itself. And this is what he said. God's light came into this world, but people love the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it, for fear their sins will be exposed. You see, we ought not to be surprised by the trouble that comes our way as we endeavor to follow Jesus. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus kind of wrapped up this last conversation that he was kind of having with his disciples before he was soon to be arrested. And he said, look, in this world, you'll have trouble. Yeah, don't be surprised. And don't pull back. Don't, don't shove your light and hide away. You're going to have trouble in this world, but take hope. Take encouragement for I have overcome the world. In essence, what Jesus was simply saying is that God's kingdom is going to advance no matter what. Nothing is going to hold it back. So keep faithful to the ends. In this world, you'll have trouble. But do not fear, do not worry. Hold on with hope because I, says Jesus, have overcome the world. So our call, in one sense, is to follow the example of Stephen. 
It's to stay faithful to the end, using every opportunity that comes our way, both good and bad. And let's be honest, we've all got things in our life that can be bad. Using every opportunity to, to, to witness to the glory of Christ. But what else does this story show us? Here's the second thing. And I think this is really profound. Not because I'm saying it, because I think this is what the story illustrates. It reminds you and I that God's purposes and plans will always prevail. That's what it does. See, what had been God's purpose for this group of new believers right here in Jerusalem? Well, Jesus had made it abundantly clear uh, to them just prior to his ascension. You know, he had told them all. He had said, you know what? I want you to wait right here in Jerusalem. I don't want you to go anywhere else. But I want you to wait right here until uh, you receive the gift of my Holy Spirit. Now, was that the only instruction that he gave them? Well, no. He said, I want you to wait here for the gift of my Spirit so that when you go out, you will be my witnesses not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus had made it really clear to them what his purpose was. And up until this point in time, Jerusalem had just been the center of the church. It wasn't a bad thing. In fact, they were loving what was going on in this environment. And it isn't to say the good news of Jesus hadn't gone out at this point in time, because we know that people had been in there for certain celebrations, and then they'd gone back out to their villages and their remote locations carrying this good news about Jesus. But after the stoning of Stephen, the kingdom of God and his purposes began to spread rapidly. Not because the apostles had been sitting around and come up with a really great strategic plan, but because of their persecution. And so once again, it's, it's worth reminding us today that persecution does to the church what wind does to seed. It scatters it everywhere and it produces an even greater harvest. And on, and on this occasion, right there in that city, these, this group of early believers, they, they were God's seeds. And this ensuring persecution, what did it do? It just kind of pushed them out of the city. It pushed them back into villages and towns and into remote regions. And as they went, they went out being planted and bearing new fruit as they, as they shared about the good news of Jesus. I thought about that, a picture of that this week in terms of what really kind of helps us to see that. And I came up with this picture that's on our screens. Ever plucked a dandelion? You know, we probably all have at some point in time, whether it's with our kids or when we were a kid, or maybe you're just a big kid still, and when you find one, you kind of pluck it. And what do you do? All of us, we might marvel at it for a moment, but you know what? We usually take that and we go, and it disperses all over the place. Now, what have we done in that moment of our, as we've, we've done that? It, well, in one sense, as, as we've picked it up, we've attacked it and we've killed it, haven't we? Because we've removed it. It's no longer there. But in that puff of wind what it does is it disperses the seeds of that dandelion all over the garden creating hundreds of more dandelions it's a beautiful picture isn't it of what god was doing in this moment with the church it was being scattered yes Stephen lost his life but god's purposes and plans they always prevail and as these men and women and these families, they went back to maybe where they'd been from or come from, or they just, they just fled. They fled with the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And today we sit here in this room or we watch online and we are the recipients of the good news of Jesus because a group of people or, or one individual by Stephen was willing to stand up and be faithful to the end. And we've experienced the amazing grace of God in our lives. See, God's purposes and plans will always prevail no matter what. So what's the Holy Spirit saying to you today? You, know, you might be sitting here thinking, oh, wow, that's a, that's a big cost. Yeah, it cost Stephen everything, didn't it? But I've got a strong sense today that Stephen, you know, in, in light of Hebrews chapter 11 and this great hall of fame of men and women who have stood resolutely as followers of Jesus down throughout the ages, it's people like, Stephen, who are beckoning us on today and saying, come on, be faithful to the end. The reward is worth it. Keep doing whatever it takes to be a faithful witness to Jesus. Faithful to the end. It makes all the difference. And maybe just maybe for some of us here or watching right now, it's, uh, it is the encouragement to us that, you know, yeah, that's what it, this is what it's about. I've got to keep doing whatever it takes. I've just got to play my part in this story, this unfolding story. You see, it didn't stop at the end of Acts. You know, the story of the church, this unstoppable church, just kept moving on down throughout the ages, and we're a part of that story. Generations of men and women who have stood in the gap faithfully, and they have cheered us along, and they're still cheering us along today, saying, be faithful to the end. You know, I get there are some moments in life where we, we can feel like giving up. We think, is it, is it worth it? Is it really worth it? People like Stephen say, you know what? Hold on with faith. Hang on with faith. Keep being faithful, doing whatever it takes. Because in the end, you'll, you'll reap a reward that far surpasses any temporary pain that you'll experience here on this earth. Or maybe it's maybe for some of us, as we think about this story, it's about, yeah, we're, we're, we're encouraged to be faithful to the end. But maybe for you today, it's around, God's encouraging around the fact that his purposes and plans will always prevail no matter what. See, that's a part of this story. It's a strong reminder to all of us as we follow Jesus that his, that his control of history is absolute. Even if he appears to be distant, or not involved. So in those moments when we feel a little anxious about things that maybe are happening around us, it's the knowledge of God's sovereign control over all things that ought to just thrill our hearts today as followers of Jesus. Whether we are young or whether we are old, that ought to just captivate our hearts in a really big way. See, he who rules history it's not, it's not a, a U.S. president or it's not a Russian president or an English prime minister. You know, these empires, they come and go. The Romans were around for a while. So were the Greeks and the Babylonians, the Assyrians. But he who rules history has guaranteed within this story that his church is unstoppable. You know, in the words of the Apostle Paul who said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Church, that's what we need to hang on to. 
Now, we may not be experiencing this kind of persecution, but the day might come for us. And it may not come for us here in this room, but it might come for our grandkids or for our great-grandchildren. And can I just say the example that we model right now will be absolutely crucial when it comes to that point in time. That we hold on with faith and hope. Trusting in a God who has overcome this world, that who rules and reigns over all things. For his purposes and his plans, they will always prevail. Would you join me as I pray? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this story. I'm grateful that I get uh, preached to it this morning and uh, because it means that I've thought about it a little bit as well too. But Father, I am praying right now that your word would just fall in a powerful way upon our hearts and our minds. To those who are maybe feeling a little bit like giving up, maybe they feel like giving up today. God, would you enable them to be faithful to the ends? To hold on with faith and hope because your word, your story tells us that, you're, that you win. You have overcome the world and your church is unstoppable. God, we thank you that your purposes always prevail, even in ways when we don't expect it. When we think that things have gotten so dark and, uh, and so hopeless, God, we can keep on hanging on. God, would you uh, send us out of this room today? Would you scatter us, so to speak? back into uh, our, our homes, back into our neighborhoods, back into our work environments, into the places that you've put us. And God, would you send us out as faithful witnesses? Wise, faithful. And Lord, would you continue to keep advancing your kingdom in and through the life of just this church and other churches right across the city as well too. As we endeavor to faithfully live for your son Jesus and we pray that in his name Amen